my ability to choose people is a part of it. Getting better at asking the right questions is part of it. But at the end of the day, you know, one of them could just be bad luck. You know, five of them, clearly I'm part of the problem. I'm Jim Hessler, and this is Path Forward, Real Conversations About Leadership. In every episode, we're having real conversations with real people about real issues, about the journey, about the challenges, about the joys. One thing leaders believe is that no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the challenges, no matter how confusing or difficult things are, there's always a path forward. Leadership is a very creative process if you're doing it well. For the past 21 years, we've been teaching leadership primarily through the process of great conversations. Our guest today is Michael. He's an attorney, and he's worked at the same firm for his entire law career, and all that time he's been training under one very senior lawyer. And when his mentor retired a few years ago, Michael took over the firm, uh, inherited the entire operation uh, overnight, and now it's three years later, and and Michael's still unpacking all that, the, all the impacts of that change on his personal and his professional life. I really went from you know zero leadership to assuming the mantle of a of a successful ongoing operation with three lawyers and two staff, and so it's really just been a real work in progress. My mentor was rather anachronistic in his leadership style, if you'd even call it that, a yeller, a belittler. Old-fashioned, old blood-and-thunder guy. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, the early days, I was kind of just doing a bad impression of a bad boss, and I suffered for it. Would you describe him as successful as a leader? I mean, apart from the personality part, did he run a good firm? He made a lot of money. So if that's okay. the definition <laughs> of success that some people use, yes. He, and, and he was a brilliant, brilliant lawyer. He trained me to be, you know, I don't know how brilliant I am, but but I am successful by that same metric. And some of those things that made him a difficult boss probably made him an effective litigator. So it's smartest guy in the room, huh? For sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So this person really commanded the ship for a long time. This was the culture that this person developed was 100%. around this personality, right? Yeah. It was a, a monarchy basically. Right. Okay. And then and then he goes and and you end up being the managing partner. Correct. Yes, I went from owning 0% of the company to owning 100% of the company. Okay, wow. What motivated you to take over the firm and what were you thinking <laughs> when you when you took it over? Well, I was essentially my mentor's squire Mm. for 18 years. And I was kind of stagnant in my growth as an attorney because he wasn't encouraging me. He wasn't trying to make me, you know, a lieutenant colonel. I was just stuck at your rank. (laughs) An older drone. But I was... I was the senior one there. So it was it was always It was a natural progression. Yeah. I mean, and it was the carrot that he gave me in lieu of the others that are more conventional. I was like, hey, at 60, I'm gonna retire, man. And then you're gonna be running this place and make money hand over fist. And so he stopped giving me raises really, but I just started working less. (laughs) That was kind of the form of my increased compensation. (laughs) And so I it was just kind of this this thing, almost like a graduation day that yeah. that loomed on the horizon. But instead of, you know, gearing up for it, it was almost the opposite. I was just kind of 
kind of like me in that half marathon I ran. I just got slower and slower as I got closer to the finish line. But it, it didn't it didn't necessarily result in like a huge reflection on your part. This is, sounds like something that you just you were headed towards this for a long time, and it was just the natural next step. Yes, I mean th- there was no reflection. Like, should I do this? Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And and I will say, you know, just the mechanics of a firm. It's to me, it would have been worth you know, 10x dollars, right? Right, right? Because, you know, he's with a few hours of transitional services and forwarding the phone calls, he, he's really handing me the keys to a train moving at full speed yeah. and the chance to make all this money. So to me, it's worth this much. But if I walk out the door, to him, it's worth one half X. Got it. Because the goodwill is all tied to the us. He made a modest choice. And I think it was, you know, in recognition of the so-called sweat equity. Yeah. The, the loyalty. Yeah, Loyalty is a really 18 important. years of it. Yeah, yeah a really important yeah. principle to me. And it was a mutual thing that we had for each other. And how is his shadow kind of getting in the way for you? The metaphor of the ship of Theseus always kind of stuck with me. Sort All right, of like, help, help us less educated <laughs> people with the ship of Theseus. So the notion of the ship of Theseus is, you know, what is the ship of Theseus as gradually one board gets replaced and later another board gets replaced, maybe 50 years later, none of the original ship is there. And yet it's, it's ontological standing as a, as a thing remains intact. Got it. And so I'm gradually replacing board by board what there was, but. But it's still the Theseus. It is mm. until and unless I choose to make it something else. I'll digress for a second, but there's a there's a famous experiment that was done with monkeys. They put a bunch of monkeys in a room and they put a ladder up to a platform and there were bananas on the platform. And the first time a monkey climbed the ladder, they, they the scientists would spray water on the monkey and the monkey would go back down the ladder. And so every time a monkey tried to go up the ladder to get the bananas, they get sprayed with water. So one by one, they replaced the monkeys. This is kind of the ship of Theseus, right? One by one, they replaced the monkeys. So they got to the point where the monkeys wouldn't go up the ladder at all. They, did, they just gave up trying. And, and one by one, they replaced the monkeys until there were no monkeys left that had ever been sprayed with water. And none of them would go up the ladder. So there's a strong historical memory around culture and behavior how is how is your current behavior at work colored by him, by his presence? As an attorney, 90%-ish of the training is useful. And <laughs> so, you know, what would he do is the right question to ask when I'm litigating, when I'm preparing for a deposition or whatever. But when it's time for performance reviews, not so much. And indeed, we didn't do performance reviews. So the very notion that I was having them was a, a deviation. In answer to your question, one staff member remains from his administration other than me. The rest have come and gone. And okay. I've had a high level of turnover in both attorneys and staff. Okay. And that's part of your concern, that you're not holding on to those people. Correct. Yeah. And certainly, my ability to choose people is a part of it, getting better at asking the right questions is part of it. But at the end of the day, you know, one of them could just be bad luck. You know, five of them, clearly I'm part yep. of part of the problem. Yeah. Both my parents studied uh, workplace psychology. And so there was a textbook at home that I grabbed one day and dove into and always stuck with me. And so I'm steeped in the theory <laughs> behind how to attract right. and retain good people. And that made it even more frustrating when I finally got to, you know, sit in the captain's yep. chair yep. and I crashed and burned, basically. 
Did you have it in mind that the firm would get bigger under your leadership? I suppose I just kind of assumed that that was the way it goes. The goal. Yeah. I mean, my my mentor again, it's another thing I'm sort of rebelling against because he had all the answers in life. The optimum model for maximum economic performance is three lawyers, one staff person, no refrigerator for snacks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, Michael, you're a lawyer. Is there something about being a lawyer that makes this situation kind of unique to that profession? What type of a, a person is a lawyer and how might that change the way that they, they lead in a business setting? Lawyers are generally pretty book smart. We have a linear way of thinking. I, I look at law school as sort of a rewiring of the brain to weed out the emotional components and just focus on the rationality. As a class of people, they're generally pretty competitive. You know, the 20th century model, hostile. And so as our society has moved away from it being normatively acceptable to be a bully, it's become far more nuanced how to be an effective competitive, in a good way, by the way. I'm not saying the old days were better. Hasn't the industry gotten a little kinder in terms of just learning how to resolve disputes? I mean, when I was in law school 20 years ago, there was a requirement in local cases that you had to mediate a dispute in mediation. That's the word know, I was The use of, for. yeah, a yeah. third-party intermediary, usually retired judge or other neutral to help. So that concept is not new. It's less okay to just be openly fighting for the sake of fighting. So there's a couple of things here that are really striking about your situation. Um, let's talk about which patterns worked from the previous boss and which ones don't work now. The other thing I'm curious about is uh, you mentioned that both of your parents studied workplace psychology and, and you're a lawyer. And so what I immediately start to wonder is the degree to which you're trying to do this out of a textbook or out of some expectation that there's a right way uh, or a wrong way to, to do this. You know, a, a legal profession is one where you, you screw up a punctuation on a sentence and you can lose hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a crazy detailed, there's a, there's a right way to litigate, there's a wrong way to litigate, there's winners, there's losers. It's generally pretty clear cut. I just wonder if, if part of that is, it, there's an expectation on your part that, that there's a, there's a formula here. Yeah, I mean, lawyers in general, I would say, sort of lean into that sort of more academic right. mindset as well. N neither the academic approach nor the sort of legalistic approach lends itself well to being emotionally intelligent, right. intuitive, to having curiosity towards your people, learning to pay attention and be open to nuance in dealing with people was not intuitive to me at all. I'm clinically depressed. It's a genetic condition. And so, yeah, there's a really steep learning curve. It really takes, in my experience, at least 10 years before you really kind of have your own footing and confidence and can kind of be yourself. The first few years as a leader, I was kind of doing an impression of my boss as a leader. Mm -hmm. The first five years as a lawyer, I'm just doing an impression of him as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And so there was very little of my authentic self in my day-to-day -day life, and that's hard. Do you mind if we talk about your depression a little bit? I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious from a leadership perspective because one of my favorite quotes about leadership is that leadership is a form of self-expression when it's done well, right? It's, it's, it's you being the best version of yourself. 
that you can be. And there's a lot of discipline in leadership, but there's also just kind of a lot of spontaneity and, and joy when it's done well. What are people seeing when they look in your eyes when they come to work? Wow. I don't know. I mean, perhaps this is the human condition. Maybe it's just me. But depending on sort of what side of the bed you wake up on in any given day, you can tilt your head one way and see, oh, I'm a, I'm a very successful person. People love me. God, you know, I'm, right. I do improv. I'm quick on my feet. I'm hilarious. Everyone just, I'm the life of the party. Everyone's so lucky to be around me. And you can, you know, wake up on the other side of the bed and suffer from imposter syndrome to the nth degree. And, you know, I'm going to be exposed today. They're going to kick me out. You know, no, no wonder everyone quits within, you know, six months. Yeah. Do you wake up on that side of the bed more often than the other side? Or? You know, I, yeah. I do okay. okay. I'm, I'm on the right meds. And in year four of leadership, I'm stepping in the bear trap less and less often. What's, so, the, what's the bear trap? Oh, just fucking up. <laughs> you <know>? Okay. <laughs> is that in regard to client work or is that in regard to your relationships with your coworkers? It could be anything. I mean, I guess yeah. more about my employees, not to quibble. I wish I had coworkers a lot of days. I don't have coworkers. Okay. I have employees. What's the distinction for you? A coworker would be a peer when I sign your paycheck and I'm I'm training you as part of why you're here is to learn from me and part of why I'm here is to teach you. It's very lonely to be at the top alone. Are they creating that distinction or are you creating that distinction? I guess it's possible I'm creating it, but to me it seems inherent in the system. And I've talked to other sole practitioners or or you know people who don't have partners, as I don't have. And it is lonely because you don't have anyone to talk to. It, it's actually an interesting distinction. I guess I, it's not one that I, I've thought about a lot as, a, as an employee versus a coworker. But, you know, I, it, just looking at the language, they are very different. And I don't think it should necessarily have anything to do with the, the hierarchy of the firm, right? That you're the more senior partner in the firm and the others are less senior. If you're solving problems together and you're enjoying that process together and you're doing a good job, that sounds like coworkers to me. Yeah. Yeah. We're doing co-work, certainly. And, and you make a point. If Two people believe themselves to be coworkers, then they are coworkers, Amen. right? Amen. That's and, absolutely true. And so perhaps, but uh, to me, it almost would be dereliction of my duty as a leader to sort of view them as as my coworkers. Like that, to me, that sells short duties that I owe them, obligations that I bear to make sure they have enough work <laughs> to, yeah, um, but they, et cetera. They, they owe you things too. They owe you to, to earn their billable rate and do good lawyering, right? Yes. So I'm wondering about the distinction and whether it's a necessary or helpful distinction to make. I wonder what might shift for you. Yeah. If you just simply got rid of that somehow. That's an, it's an interesting notion. I sort of have this vision, Michael Scott from The Office. I'm not sure. familiar with the show. <laughs> when I think of a notion of sort of pretending I'm not really the boss, I'm your friend, and I'm, yeah. you know, I'm this. So that it, sounds kind of smarmy. It's, it's and, still, yeah, it yeah. still rings a little false yeah, to I me. It. I get it. But it all depends on the context. And yeah. in certain contexts, viewing them as coworkers would probably be an emotionally healthy distinction for me to find. Yeah, I, I often use the example of, uh, I wrote a book, and, and uh, the person that kind of co-authored the book with me is a gentleman named Steve. And, and Steve and I worked together in my, in my business for about 10 years. Never socialized, didn't really share any interests out of, outside of work necessarily, didn't talk a lot about our kids and our families and stuff like that. Incredibly close friends. 
despite the fact that there that, that we we weren't friends in the in the sense that you would use that term with your neighbor or your brother-in-law, right? But we were friends because we we both loved the work we did and we did it together in a committed and kind of harmonious way. And and now that he's long retired and living in Mexico, we've we've become more friends on a personal level, but it was built on the working relationship. I, I think often people reverse the sequence, right? They they think, okay, you know, the 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 office, right? It if I'm their friend, then we'll develop a good working relationship. I feel like the working relationship absolutely comes first. That has to be established. And then I think friendship can often grow out of that ability of us to do good things together because that's just a good feeling. The labels, I guess, that they have whatever meaning we impute. I certainly don't feel that my coworkers, <laughs> employees, whatever you want to call them, are my friends. But maybe we are. And, and again, I don't know what's inside their hearts. I don't know how they define friendship. Yeah. I don't know if I would meet that definition. I don't know if it's important whether I do or not. Yeah. I certainly want them to like me and respect me and be grateful for the chance to work together. I guess at the end of the day, if you're worrying about how other people feel about you, you're probably worrying about the wrong things, I would think. Oh, boy. Let's unpack that one for four or five hours. Yeah. <laughs> um, you're working really hard at this, aren't you? Yes. I mean, you're just really, really working hard trying to figure this out. And I, I just want to say I honor that. I mean, I, I just I respect how seriously you're taking this and how hard you're working at it. God, God bless you. And at the same time, I wonder if you're working too hard at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Does, does that resonate at all? On two levels. One, just the notion of small businesses not being able to turn down work. And mm. so am I working too hard in that sense? Quite possibly. And then in the sense that's probably more fundamental, and I think that you meant, am I just thinking way too much and trying way too hard uh, about basic things to get through the day that if I could just let go of and— Right, you know. and that's why I kind of, you know, I, I asked you about being a lawyer, right? Because what, what does a lawyer do? A lawyer makes sure that everything is just right. You probably proofread everything you send out 18 times and have two people look at it. And I just wonder if there's a level of kind of perfection that you're striving for in this that's not achievable or even necessarily desirable. Yeah, it's quite possible. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I'm the best proofreader in the office, which mm -hmm. sometimes bothers me. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's an art and a science to it. And there's just a sort of an intangible want to. And I just happen to have whatever combination of abilities and defects that just make me have to find those mistakes. Yeah. And, I mean, when you're a small firm and you're litigating against these national law firms, you know, big firm BS, your, your work product can't look any worse in front of the judge than the, than the big guys. And so and that was something my boss, I didn't mention this, but he had been trained at big firms. So I do feel as though I got a big firm training sure. yep. in a small firm. And so, yeah, one of the things I learned is, yeah, the, the, the work has to be perfect. The, the printed word has to be perfect. And there's probably very little doubt that I attempt to translate that into interpersonal interactions in a way that probably isn't attainable. Yeah, one, one of the things that has always kind of driven me a little bit crazy, I, you know, I'm in the leadership development business. You know, I've been doing it for 20 plus years. And one of the things that always just irritates me is all the books that come out that say, if you just do these three things, you know, 
or here's your, they're all list books, right? We're the guys from the Harvard Business Review and we've studied businesses and all the really successful do, businesses do these five things. So you should do these five things too. It's a, you know, if you pitch a book with a list, it's far easier to get it, it approved, it, it right? It absolutely is. Just flesh it, it out. It, it absolutely is. And, and so I think what it does is it, it, it makes us dumber. I think a lot of business books make us dumb because they, they infer that you can boil something as inc- insanely complicated as leadership down into a formula or a list of things, of behaviors, right? When in fact, what we want our bosses to be is we want them to be human beings, number one. We want them to be, to be caring human beings, ethical human beings, but we, by no means do we hold them to a standard of being perfect. Yeah. I mean, I was an employee for the vast majority of of my career in my life. And it seems, from what I remember of being on that side of it, it's a far simpler thing. Mm. What do you want from your boss? You know, treat me with respect. Right. Make sure my check clears. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if I tell you I need to go home for the day because, right. you know, my water heater broke, then let me go. Ask my opinion. Yeah. Seek my knowledge. Help me grow. Yeah. Same thing you want from your parents to a large degree, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's— it. it it's much simpler on that side of it. That's it seems a really to me. interesting observation. I like um, that. That it's simpler from the employee side than it is from the leader. Yeah, there's just the sort of a few side. covenants. Yeah. And and the beauty of being an employee is that you vote with your feet every single day. Yeah. In my profession, there's this notion of partnership, and especially in legal shows, and that's one of the things that translates pretty closely to real life, is that, you know, lawyers six, seven years in I want a piece of the business. I'll you know, cut me yeah. in, cut me out, I'll make partners. Yeah, professional services firms of all sorts. But what you really yeah, are, yeah. if I give you 10% of my firm, you, you are essentially married to me, but in a, in a minority sense. Right, like I can right. still control exactly how much money you make. I can control everything about your life that I could control the day before you got 10%. The difference is you don't get to just walk away. Mm-hmm. You now owe me contractual right, obligations. Right. And so it, it really is sort of a double-edged sword. And it just so happens, you know, uh, as is implicit in what I told you, my mentor did not believe one iota in cutting people in. Yeah. And I, I've rejected that. I'm going to offer ownership to my my senior associate. Interesting. I want her in. I, <laughs> yeah. I want to keep the control but also have her – you know, but that could that, that that could really change the dynamic, couldn't it? I hope so. Yeah, I really do. Because then, yeah. I'm I mean, really pleased to hear that. I think that's a good move. It might take some of the heat off you and give you a little more uh, peer support. You mentioned that, that peer idea earlier about um, wanting to see people more that way than than in a hierarchical sense. Right. I always point out to people that there's just an inherent conflict in that simplest of models. There's a boss and there's an employee. And there's just all kinds of potentially negative dynamics that show up for one reason alone, and that is that one person has more power in that relationship than the other person does. Any time you have a hierarchy of any sort, it's a little bit of a minefield because the, the person on the lower box, no matter how open they are and how friendly they are and how much esteem they have for the person in the box above them, the box is above them. And I think that that negatively impacts both parties in that relationship to not have the power shared more effectively. What do you need to hold on to and what do you need to let go of? How can you get to the point where you're willing to let other people help you more? The whole idea that the boss has to be the person with the answers, I think, is a, is a fallacy. 
Wow, that blows my mind. Say more. Uh, the boss has to have the answers. <laughs> no, they don't. I guess no one could have the answers. The boss has to have the questions. So let me, let me see if I'm tracking. Let's assume that the employee has an answer. Don't I still have to acknowledge that answer? I mean, I, 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 of course, I get the idea of listening to your team and being able to identify a good idea and implement it. And I can also readily understand giving an employee autonomy over, in my world, you know, a given case. Right. And so in that, he or she has the answer to a specific question. But in general, at least for me, you know, lit- litigation and owning a business is a series of decisions. So let, let, me, let me shift the question then. What would your firm be like if you had how many, you have three or four lawyers working right. in your firm. What if all of them were better at being a lawyer than you were? Would that be a, a good, healthy firm? If I ran it right, it sure would. Damn straight. Well, why don't you work towards that? It seems like you're humble enough to let go. What I would suggest is as you let go of that knowledge and you, you bring other people around you, you don't lose any of your power. You don't lose any of your influence. You don't lose any of your leadership. In fact, it, it, that leadership likely expands in its influence if you're not the smartest person in the room all the time. I enjoy, and I haven't grown too big to be able to do this on all but the the minorest of cases that we have, is to collaborate with my team and kick it around. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what's, what's the best approach? I do believe I do a good job of seeking input. My default when when associate asks me, you know, what should I do here? You know, what do you think we should do? You know, uh, give, give me your Give me your recommended best idea and then give me the second best idea and let me pick between them. And do, then they, if, do they get to weigh in on, on, your, uh, on your work? On the cases where we collaborate, yes. I mean, there's X percent of the cases where I'm just yeah. an island unto myself. And yeah. I'm, but I'm trying to reduce the number of cases that, that meet that description. Okay. I, I'm pushing 50. And I hope that by 50, if I'm not fully out of the game, that I'm at least I can see the, see the exit – your exit strategy is to sell the firm at some point. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's the way it goes in professional services, yeah. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I almost got the impression earlier, you were were talking about your depression, which I really appreciate you sharing with us. Something I've struggled with in the past as well. Thank God not for about 15 years now, but it was a big part of my life for a long time. How visible is that for people? Who work with you. I mean, assuming you're still struggling with it, which I got the impression that it's still, it's still there. I mean, I have bad days, but more good days than bad. My senior person I've confided in, hmm. and, you know, if I'm having an off day, I don't go out of my way to overshare my personal life or my emotional temperature. But if I know it's going to impact them, you know, I might just say, hey, you know, and I went through a pretty difficult family thing in the past year. And so there were mm-hmm. days when I was just like, hey, just so you know, I don't I don't have it today. Yeah. I don't confide in the rest of my team to that level. Mm-hmm. So I don't know the degree to which they might be aware or not aware. I'll, I'll remind you that I think it was twice early in this conversation you used the term isolated, uh, that you, you talked about the kind of isolation of being a leader. Yeah. And that's a, I mean, a, classic depressed person thing to say. 
Yeah. I mean, depressed people do feel isolated. Give me just give me a picture of maybe a year from now and just say, if things go really well, what is what does it look like a year from now? A year from now, I've got a partner. We've got new offices because I've only got three exterior offices. And so if I want to hire a fourth lawyer, which I'm actually interviewing for that position now, we either need to do a telework schedule or find a so, new spot or find a new spot or yeah. make somebody have an well, interior commercial space. Commercial real estate's pretty cheap right now, <laughs> so I think your chances oh, are Oh, <laughs> it's it's coming down from a, a huge high. Right, true. It's it'll be a long time before the word cheap applies, but it's definitely going in the right direction. Yeah, yeah. but it it would be a huge bet on on myself because it is a six-figure investment in tenant improvements yeah. to to move anywhere. But a year from now I've I've made that bet and it's paid off. And we're four or five lawyers, two, three staff. I haven't lost anyone to quitting or firing, and uh, and we've grown. And my people are picking up the brand that, that we teach, and I come to work, and I solve the puzzles and help the people. I do drive home most days with almost teacher-like you know, confidence that, that, I, that I help people. And yeah. so the notion of doing that for more people, that's how I see growth. When I asked you that question— there's just a subtle shift in kind of your energy. I don't know if you even noticed. I'll take tomorrow over today, sure. Yeah, I mean, and I wonder how much of that, how much of that type of discussion about the future and what we want this firm to be would be something that would draw you and your coworkers yeah. closely together and have them feel that they're part of that. I mean, vision doesn't have to be world peace. Vision can be a year from now we have, an, we have a better office and a year from now we're enjoying working together. And a year from now, I've found the role that's most productive and helpful for this firm. Sharing those things with the people you work with can be really powerful. You know, one thing I don't aspire to do on this podcast is, is give any, like, cheap advice, like, you know, like Tony Robbins, rah-rah, <laughs> go team kind of stuff. But I think in your case, I'm going to give a little bit of cheap advice, and that would be if you can walk in the door of your building every day, and really strive to have fun and and not try to be the perfect boss. I think, I don't know, I feel like that might help. Have you seen Ted Lasso by chance? Yeah, I have. So yeah. I, I've been ruminating about the degree to which he is, would be a model yeah. for me as a leader. And and I see a lot more yes than no in that. Yeah, because um, you're, you're a very nice person. I can tell that. You've got a lot of warmth. You're emotionally invested in what you do. These are all great qualities for a leader to have. And I think it might just be a matter of letting some of that loose. And and as a leader, you have exponentially more power to do that because you absolutely do. They don't they yeah. they can't be the first one to start whistling yeah. unless you've built a culture where they know they're well, safe right. to whistle. Right. Or yeah. or yeah, or or you appreciate that about them and, and and encourage that 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 part of them. I you know, I had a a boss one time, he said leadership is a thousand little moments of truth every day. It's just you have to be in the moment. You have to be locked in to, to that moment because every moment there's an opportunity to lead people. Every gesture, every, every time you pass by them in the office, every time you say hello in the morning, every time you pour your coffee, every one of those moments is an opportunity. And it's a, it's a hell of a responsibility to think that way. It can be burdensome to think that way. It can also be kind of liberating, like, my God, I have— I have so much power. I have so much 
influence. It's not a huge leap for me because that's my job. And so just extending it to the trip down the hall to fill my water bottle is not a a huge paradigm shift for me to adopt. So I definitely will. And that's, I appreciate the insight very much. I've enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for listening to me and giving me your advice. Yeah, I, I, I think I could work for you. Yeah, shit, we need people. (laughs) I'll, I'll leave you my card. All right, deal. Thanks again. Thank you. There is no perfect way to be a leader of people. There is no five-step formula or 10-step formula. There are things that work. There are things that you should learn. There are tools that you can use. There are practices that you can learn that are going to be somewhat effective on a repetitive basis. But part of the art of leadership is understanding the uniqueness of each situation, each person each challenge that you have and not trying to apply a set of rules or or practiced moves to each situation. There's a tremendous level of spontaneity in leadership and that requires a lot of trust in yourself. That requires a lot of self-confidence and it requires you to get ego out of the way and understand that you're not always going to have the right answer and you're not always going to have the right tool to use in the right circumstance. So get over yourself Enjoy yourself. Express yourself. Your employees want you to be a whole, real person. They want to know you warts and all. And they, the most important thing for them to know is, is that you care about the business, that you care about them as human beings, and that you're, you're, you're willing to learn and you're always willing to try to do your best. But don't try to be the perfect boss. It, it, it's, a, it's a stale act. It, it's, not, it's not one that resonates well. Don't walk into a room and try to impress people. Walk into it and try to lead people. Very different. I I hope our guest can walk into his office tomorrow and loosen some of these bonds that are holding him to this standard of perfection. There is no perfection in, in leadership. There's only constant improvement, striving, curiosity, and joy. Well, thank you for listening to Path Forward, Real Conversations About Leadership. If you enjoyed this episode, really appreciate it if you let us know. You can rate and review the show on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. Special thanks to all my guests for the level of vulnerability they took in sharing their stories. If you'd like to be a guest on Path Forward, please reach out via the contact form on my website, pathforwardleadership.com. That's also where you can learn more about our show, my upcoming book, and my leadership services. This episode is produced by Large Media. You can find them at larjmedia.com. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Jim Hessler, and this is Path Forward.